1: So today we have Dr. Justin Miller on the podcast. Dr. Miller is a research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. Miller is an award-winning educator, having been honored three times with the Certificate of Teaching Excellence from Harvard University, where he taught for several years. He is also a prolific researcher and scholar who has published more than 40 pieces of academic writing to date, including a textbook entitled The Psychology of Human Sexuality. Hey, thanks for chatting with me today, Justin. Hey, thanks for having me, Scott. What a topic this is. something we really haven't represented as fully in the podcast and really trying to kind of expand the depths of humanity that we cover on this podcast and understanding of that. Let's start with Freud because everything always starts with Freud, right? And then we criticize it and then we say what he got wrong and then we say what the way to science is. So, what did Freud have to say about sexual fantasy and desire? Did he have anything to say on that topic? (laughs)
0: Freud had a lot to say about sex and a lot to say about fantasies too. And his main conclusion was basically that a happy person never fantasizes, only a dissatisfied one. So Freud's view of sexual fantasies was really that they're usually always a sign of deeper psychological troubles that a person has.
1: He said the same thing about daydreaming. Yeah. Maybe daydreaming is associated with sexual. I don't know. It'd be interesting to. Anyway, that's a whole other research topic. But okay. So, tell me about the methodology that you employed for what you refer to as the largest survey of sexual fantasies in America. Now, is that of all time? As far as I know, yes. There are larger sex
0: surveys that exist, but none that have focused uh, specifically on sexual fantasies and that have approached it in a way that's as comprehensive as I did. So, what I did for this book was I surveyed almost 4,200 Americans who came from all 50 states ranged in age from 18 to 87, come from all different religious, political, and demographic backgrounds. And they completed a survey that contained 369 questions. And it started with, what is your biggest sexual fantasy of all time? People wrote that out in narrative form. I also had them sum it up in one word, which I thought was really interesting, because I could then create a word cloud to look at, you know, what are the most popular themes that appear in people's fantasies. And then I asked them hundreds of questions about people, places, things they had ever fantasized about, along with detailed information on their personalities, their sexual histories, their demographic backgrounds. So as far as I know, it is the largest, most comprehensive look at sexual fantasies to date.
1: Well, congratulations. That's not easy getting that many participants for anything. So did you use online surveys? Is that what you did? Or I mean, you didn't like bring every single one into a laboratory?
0: Oh, no. And uh, I wouldn't have had the, the funding to be able to do that. As, as you probably know, there's yeah. not a lot of funding for psychology research in general, but specifically on sex and, and sexual fantasies. There's almost no money to do it. So uh, this was in, an online survey. I largely recruited through social media, and it was advertised as a survey of sexual fantasies. It took about a half hour or so to complete on average. And it took me close to two years to
1: collect all these wow. data. Wow. Well, what an accomplishment. So, you got a lot of very interesting data out of it. So, let's dive into some of this. What are the seven most common sexual fantasies in America? Why don't we just jump into the deep end? Okay.
0: (laughs) Sure. So, I found that there were three fantasies that almost everyone who took the survey reported having. The most popular was multi-partner sex. So, just having sex with multiple people at once, most commonly that was in the form of a threesome, but some people fantasized about larger groups. Very close in popularity was BDSM fantasies, bondage, domination, submission, sadism, masochism, ranging from mild to wild, but most commonly taking more mild forms like spankings and, and you know tying your partner up, things like that. And then the third category that almost everyone reported was what I call novelty, adventure, and variety. So that was basically just trying something that's new and different for you. That could be a new position or having sex in a new place or setting. So that means something a little different to everyone because what's new for you might not be very new to someone else. There were also four other fantasies I found that were very popular themes. Not quite as popular as the three I just mentioned, but these were uh, taboo and forbidden sexual activities, so so breaking social or cultural norms for what's acceptable when it comes to sex. Fantasies about passion and romance, so basically meeting your deeper emotional needs. Also, fantasies about same-sex activities and what I call gender bending, where basically people are sort of pushing the boundaries of their gender role or identity or expression. And then the other category of fantasies was what I call non-monogamy. So basically being in some type of sexually open relationship, not necessarily having group sex, but maybe, for example, being polyamorous or
1: trying swinging or, or something along those lines.: So that covers quite a range of things. Would you say that for uh, most of these these are the general outlines you didn't like go into great detail? In the book, you do go into some specific detail about some of the more extreme things and the specifics of it. In general, would you say that most of these fantasies, while, like even the taboo ones, they're not necessarily illegal? What are some taboo things that most people do and what is actually, what kind of taboo stuff is actually more minor, more rare in the general population?
0: Sure. So the, the taboo fantasy category is interesting in that some of the fantasies that were very popular, very common would actually be illegal if people were to huh. act them out. So voyeurism was actually one of the most popular taboo fantasies where people are spying on someone else who is unsuspecting or unknowing while they're undressing or having sex. It seems that a lot of people, men and women alike, find that to be sexually arousing. That doesn't mean that they necessarily want to do it in real life. So I I think there's an important distinction we need to make between having a fantasy and having a desire. Mm. So people can fantasize, be turned on about something, but not necessarily want to do it because they realize, hey, that would be illegal or non-consensual and I shouldn't do that.
1: So that seems to be a common thread running through your entire book, actually, is the difference between fantasy and actuality. So, some people can have these fantasies, and it doesn't necessarily mean that they are a horrible person. Is that right? Like, I feel like a lot of this book is like to reduce shame around a lot of these fantasies. Is that right?
0: Mm-hmm. Right. And it turns out that a lot of us have uh, dark and deviant fantasies from time to time. And it seems like it's normal to have those fantasies, and it's not a sign of psychopathology. It's not a sign that you're on the route to becoming a a sex offender or something along those lines. It's really only when you have these dark deviant fantasies all the time, and that becomes your preferred fantasy content, Mm -hmm. that it starts to represent a problem. And, And that is rare. So a lot of people will have deviant fantasies, you know, occasionally, but when it becomes the preferred fantasy content, that's a very different thing.
1: That's a really important distinction, it seems. And also, the point you're making that we shouldn't really judge people by the content of their fantasies necessarily, right? Like, you know, the whole phrase judge them by the content of the character, like, what I'm trying to say is, it seems like you're saying, like, don't judge the content of the character by the content of their sexual fantasies. <laughs> <laughs> right. It, and, and that's where it's, you know... It's the first time gets- I ever phrased it like that. But. <laughs>
0: yeah. yeah it, it, that's where it's useful to make the distinction between having the fantasy and then wanting to act on it or actually acting on it, because that is a very different thing than just having the thought pop into your head. Sometimes we have fantasies that pop into our heads, simply because we have very active imaginations. Uh, I find that people who uh, score high on this measure that's called uh, having a fantasy-prone personality, which basically means you daydream a lot, you fantasize a lot. People who are high in this fantasy-prone personality fantasize more about everything, whether it's conventional or unconventional. And that doesn't necessarily mean that there's anything deeper to it beyond just that they have a lot of thoughts that pop into their head.
1: So this is something I found interesting because it seems like there's a kind of a general... I always like to think of like generalized principles and stuff and it seems like sexual self-actualization is really important for well-being. This is something I gathered from your book as well, that it it seems like the more that people have these fantasies and kind of keep them in their head, the more taboo it becomes, the more guilt-ridden it becomes. But if they can find safe, obviously consensual ways of expressing it, you say most people actually report when they actually express their fantasies, they're like, wow, that was awesome. Mm -hmm.
0: Right. Yeah. So one really interesting thing I found was that when I asked people how common they thought their sexual fantasies are, most people thought that they were rarer in the population than they really are. And that's a big part of where all of this shame comes from, is that people think they're weird or abnormal or unusual for having the fantasies that they do. And when they start feeling guilty or ashamed of their fantasies, then they tend to keep them to themselves rather than sharing them with their partners. But what I find is that when people start to express those fantasies, share them with a partner, this doesn't necessarily mean act on them. But just having that open communication with a partner about fantasy and desire, what you find is that for the most part, people report positive outcomes. They report that it actually improved their relationship to be able to talk about these fantasies with their partners. So there's a lot of potential benefits we stand to gain by having more open communication about our fantasies rather than just keeping them to ourselves and having all of this pent up guilt and shame that goes along with them.
1: What individual differences factors did you find were most predictive of feeling guilt over your sexual fantasies?
0: Oh, that's a good question. Uh, Didn't
1: you write about Republicans, how they have a lot of guilt? (laughs) (laughs)
0: Yeah. So certainly there were some political and religious undertones there. So for people who have more political and moral restrictions placed upon them, they do tend to feel more guilty about their sexual fantasies no matter what they are. There's also an interesting gender difference where I find that men feel more guilt about their sexual fantasies than women. And to me, that was really surprising because we live in a society that is very judgmental of women just for being desirous of sex. So you might expect that women, on average, would feel more guilty about their sex fantasies, but that's not what I found. I found that men felt a lot more guilt than women did. Part of that might stem from the fact that men report having more taboo sexual fantasies than women. So maybe that's where some of the guilt stems from. But, you know, we see some interesting political, religious, and gender differences there in, the, in those feelings of guilt.
1: Uh, do you think that the Me Too movement actually might explain some of this as well, where men are now being overly cautious? I should note that these data were collected before the Me Too
0: movement really mm. kicked uh, so, so, these data were collected toward the end of the second Obama administration. So, how it would relate to Me Too, you know, I can't necessarily okay. say based on the timing of data collection, but I do think that there is an interesting point to be made there that there might be some linkages there that could be contributing to further shame and, and guilt about sex fantasies. And one area in particular where that might happen would be in the case of forced sex fantasies. I found and wrote about this extensively in the book that a lot of men and women fantasize about being taken against their will. So amidst the current backdrop of Me Too, where we're talking about rape and sexual assault, how people might feel about those forced-to-sex fantasies might be very different today compared to when the data were collected.
1: I've always found that data interesting about the prevalence of these kinds of fantasies. And when you look deeper into it, it does seem as though the content of fantasy is, is more of like controlled rape in a sense. Like you're the one actually in control. Like it's not, the fantasy is not actually about non consensual rape, but it seems to be, in my reading of the literature, more about a desire to kind of, someone wants you so bad, you know, that there's kind of this overriding passion where you feel wanted in a sense. Is there something to that? Yeah. And
0: I think that's part of the reason why some people refer to these fantasies as consensual non consent. Yeah. Because I think ultimately what this is really about is, is sort of a take on dominance submission play, or yes, the other person wants you so badly. And there's that element of dominance submission. But ultimately, in the fantasy, you are still in control. You're still dictating the terms under which this encounter happens. So that's varied from a rape or sexual assault that happens in the real world where the victim is not yeah. in, in control of the situation there.
1: It really seems so. Let's talk about some other sex differences. But in order to do that, I think there's an important distinction I made here between sexual orientation and sexual flexibility. Can you just describe the difference between the two?
0: Sure. So I talk about this a bit in the book. Your sexual orientation is really what orients you toward persons of a certain sex. So whether you're heterosexual, homosexual, bisexual. So the orientation is really more about who you're attracted to. And the flexibility portion is more about your willingness to deviate from sexual norms, and, and also deviate from your orientation as well to try new things and have new partners and experiences. So
1: you found that women tend to have more flexible sexuality. Is that right?
0: Right. And in, in a lot of different types of ways, women were more flexible with respect to the gender of their partners. So for example, women who identified as exclusively heterosexual reported more same-sex fantasies than men who identified as exclusively heterosexual. There were other areas where we see women's greater flexibility coming out, for example, and having more BDSM fantasies across the board. That was one of the things I found really interesting was that women reported more BDSM fantasies of almost every type, whether it was taking on a sadistic role or a masochistic role or a dominant submissive role. Women were reporting more of these fantasies than were men.
1: So that's an interesting finding. You know, let's talk about BDSM for a second because it's a topic not talked about that frequently in polite company and society, right? Because there's a taboo against it, which obviously is probably part of the horror of it for a lot of people. You know, that's the point, you know, I guess. But there is this kind of notion that you must be mentally ill if you have BDSM fantasy or you act out BDSM, that if you like the sadism aspect of BDSM, that you're a sadist in real life, Right. Is that necessarily true? Does your data challenge any of these just widely held stereotypes? Yeah, my data and the
0: data of other researchers looking at people who are interested in BDSM finds that they are not poorly adjusted psychologically. They are not necessarily victims of sexual abuse either. That's the popular stereotype that is reinforced by depictions like Fifty Shades of Grey, which seem to suggest that if you're into BDSM, that you come from this troubled history and past, and that You're messed up. uh, Fifty shades of messed up is the expression I've heard. (laughs) Yep. So yeah, the data doesn't really seem to support that idea. One interesting thing I did find, though, was that for people who had BDSM fantasies and who had acted on them, they reported better psychological adjustment than people who had BDSM fantasies but had kept them to themselves. It's something that's true more generally with our fantasies, which is when we keep them secret and hide them. And we feel guilt and shame about them. That can be psychologically damaging. But when we come to accept them as as part of who we are, then we can come to
1: feel better about ourselves. Yeah. And that's a common, like we were just talking about, that's a common generalizable theme across all of this. I want to quote you the sentence you said, because I think the sentence out of context could be potentially very controversial. I'd like you to explain, elaborate on it a little bit. It could also be that women's greater interest in BDSM might have something to do with the idea that women are more likely than men to fantasize about being the object of desire. What do you mean mm-hmm. by the? Do you mean being objectified? What do you mean? So, in their fantasies, we see a gender. You're being difference. very careful here in your answer, I can tell you. Being very careful. <laughs> and,
0: yes, and, and I think it's a topic that requires it requires sensitivity. Yeah, it, it does. Uh, I appreciate so- that. So in fantasies, we see this gender difference where it ties in with another finding I had, which is that men placed more emphasis on who they were having sex with than women. So for men, it was more important to have a specific person in mind. And I think it's because men see themselves as acting on, they tend to see themselves as acting on an object of desire. So having a specific person in mind is more important. Whereas women in their fantasies see themselves more as the object of desire. And so for them, the the specific partner they have isn't quite as important because they are more the center of attention in their sexual fantasy. Now, I think the interesting question is, where does that come from? Yeah. Right? Why do we see this difference in men and women with, you know, in terms of being the object of desire or acting on the object of desire? And, and I don't know that we know the answer to that. It could be, there could be a cultural explanation there because women are more sexually objectified in our culture. And maybe that creeps into our sexual fantasies in a way. The other thing that's, that's worth mentioning here is that most people have a lot of different fantasies. I guess one of the questions that might help to address this too would be, is it someone's favorite fantasy? Is this what they're always going back to? Or is it just a fantasy that they have had, simply have had before that's popped into their head? Uh, and there could be some variability there where maybe most of the time they fantasize about being more in that, sexual object role versus, you know, maybe just occasionally they fantasize about being the uh, person who's acting on the object of desire.
1: Do you ever get shy talking about some of those topics? Do I get shy talking about it?
0: No, but I do. <laughs> I do get hesitant talking about some of these topics just because I know how controversial and delicate some of them are. And this is something that someone who's been teaching human sexuality courses for more than a decade that I'm very cognizant of and that a lot of my colleagues don't quite realize. I think some of them look at me and they think, oh, he he got high evaluations for teaching a human sexuality course. But that's mm-hmm. because sex, you know, everybody wants to take a sex course and sex is easy. Um, but the reality that Everything you say in a human sexuality course is a potential minefield where you have the potential to offend someone uh, who might have a different view or different identity. So, this is one area where you have to be
1: so, so careful in how you phrase and talk about every point. Justin, I completely agree with that. And I hope that listeners to this podcast will think that we're being sensitive. And I'm sure they'll let us know if we're not. (laughs) But I really um, think that, you know, there's a sensitivity, but also you want to say the truth. Do you want to be authentic in what you found? Now, do you give trigger warnings when you teach certain topics in the course? like when you cover the topic of rape fantasies, I mean, my gosh, that seems like a potential if anything's going to have a trigger warning associated with it, it would be that. What's your thinking on that?
0: Yeah, so I have given a general caveat at the beginning of every semester when I teach a human sexuality course to say, you know, this is a course about sex, and we're going to talk about things that might upset you or might offend you. And you have to be aware of that going in. But I'm not going to excuse students from learning about certain material if they're worried about how it might offend them. We need to be open to hearing about data and ideas and theories that might challenge us personally on a lot of levels. We can't always just get up and leave whenever a topic makes us uncomfortable. And I think that's where we run into a lot of problems is when we just cover our ears and we don't want to hear about things that are potentially upsetting.
1: Yeah, good. Okay, so we can just end, I think we can end the discussion of sex differences by emphasizing the point that men and women really do tend to fantasize about the same things. The main difference Mm -hmm. is in the frequency with which they have a given type of fantasy. Is that right?
0: Right. Yeah. So I found that there was a lot more commonality in the things that men and women were fantasizing about than you might expect. So men, for example, had a lot more emotional content in their fantasies than previous research would have suggested. And women's sexual fantasies were more adventurous than previous research would have suggested. For the most part, we're all fantasizing about the same things. But for example, men do fantasize a little bit more about the reasons. Women do fantasize a little bit more about emotional connection with the partner. Um, But for the most part, we're fantasizing about the same things.
1: Good. That's a really good point. And uh, there was a like an interesting book called "Was a Thousand Wicked Thoughts" or something like that. A billion, a yeah. billion, <laughs> a billion. And, and something that struck me in reading that is that like some topics, it's like people like getting as close as they can to taboo without crossing a line. So for instance, mm-hmm. like stepfather pornography is really popular, but it's right. not like actual father pornography is popular. But stepfather, you know, is there something to that? Yeah. So, you know, there's actually a bonus
0: chapter uh, for the book that goes into a lot more detail. Yeah. It it goes into a lot more detail about these taboo fantasies. And I do talk about incest fantasies in there. I also talk about furry fantasies, you know, people who like to dress up as an animal to have sex. I cover all of the sort of less common sexual desires there. But I think a big part of what, what draws people to the taboo is basically just that it interjects this form of novelty, you know, that it's something you're not supposed to do. And, and when you're told that you can't do something, that often makes you want to do it even more. It's you know, the classic reverse psychology. So there's a bit of that reactance that's going on. And there's just that sort of heightened level of, of excitement that comes along with doing something or thinking about something that you're not supposed to do or want. So certain people are more drawn to the taboo. Those people would be high in the trait of uh, sexual sensation seeking, where they just have a higher threshold for stimulation. So, if you're one of those sensation seekers, you might be more drawn to the taboo just for that reason.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really sensible answer. You know, this book could just be extraordinarily eye-opening to a lot of people who have been feeling a lot of guilt over their fantasies. Also, a lot of, you know, religious people, people who've grown up in religious backgrounds where they were taught that even just thinking about sex, no matter what kind of sex is really bad... It's eye-opening at a really deeply profound level though I feel like at even a more profound level than even the points you make in the book explicitly because like are you telling me that like most people like we meet every day in our life have a lot of freaky fantasies going on in their head like we don't know about like I mean if when you actually get to the truth of the matter of the world isn't that like a bit like incredible little too eye-opening <laughs> <laughs> uh, Yeah I mean it, it it depends on your perspective You know what I mean But,
0: <laughs> yeah. but I think you know, one of the takeaways from what I found through this research is, is basically that, you know, what would be unusual would be if you only fantasized about very conventional sexual activities. You know, if your fantasy was only ever having penile vaginal intercourse with a spouse in a monogamous marriage in your own bed, you know, every night, you know, for the rest of your life, if that was your only sexual fantasy ever, that would be pretty unusual it seems to be normative
1: for people to be a bit kinky when it comes to their fantasies. Wow. So most people, when they fantasize, they're not fantasizing about like kissing the person, like really affectionate, loving, and then normal vanilla sex.
0: Well, I mean, that is certainly a part of people's fantasies. Affection is a big part of people's fantasies because people are often trying to meet emotional needs through their sexual fantasies. You know, I wouldn't say that that is weird or unusual in any way. My point was just that if that's the only thing you ever fantasized about, according to my data, that would be
1: uncommon. I'd see this is so interesting. That's why we need the science, right? Like, thank goodness you came along and did this largest (laughs) survey ever in the history of the world. Like, so we know the truth. But of course, the truth is going to make a lot of people uncomfortable, right? Sure.
0: And there's a lot in this book that I expect that will be controversial. You know, For we talked about the four sex fantasies and how common they are being one of them. We talked about some of the gender differences being another. Another area is that, you know, I see differences between Republicans and Democrats and the sexual fantasies that they have with uh, Republicans having more taboo fantasies than Democrats. So I think looking at across the board, there's a lot of controversial stuff in here.
1: So, let's not stop there. Let's keep going on. (laughs) So, what do your sexual fantasies say about you? Now, you ask 15 questions. Obviously, Mm -hmm. I don't think we have time for you to go through all 15. Maybe how about I pick out some of the most delicious ones to me? (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Sure. Uh, Let's start with age because there's something surprising there with age. Some people, you know, may think that younger might be kinkier or not, but that's not necessarily the case, right?
0: Right. So as people get older, they seem to become more sexually adventurous in a lot of ways. So uh, I found that there's a correlation between age and fantasies about non-monogamy and group sex. So the older people get, the more likely they are to have, say, threesome fantasies or to fantasize about being in an open relationship. Interestingly, though, it's actually a curvilinear relationship, meaning that interest in those activities increases up till about age 40, stays high through the mid-50s or so, and then starts to decline again. And I think what's going on there is basically that as people are getting older and they enter long-term relationships, most people end up in monogamous marriages, that they're just looking for ways to spice up their sex lives. But then as they get older and enter their retirement years, their sexual needs and desires sort of change and adjust. So I think there's actually this whole developmental time course of sexual fantasies that something I want to explore
1: in some future research. Totally. It makes complete sense from a novelty dopamine perspective. Like when you're 18. What's taboo to you is just having sex, like, you know, because you, you, you haven't done too much. most people haven't done too much of it by 18. But by the time you're like 60, you've done probably a lot. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it makes so much sense that you're going to ramp up the dopamine system of what gets you turned on. So, you only stopped with 87 year olds. Like, what if you studied 97 year olds? They could be the kinkiest of them all. You don't know that. You haven't studied it. I, I haven't. You know, <laughs> and certain, there, there
0: are limitations of, of data based on age. Also, you know, another limitation I should point out is that, you know, I did focus on Americans' sexual fantasies. I didn't really look at people in different cultures. And I think that's another interesting direction worth exploring in the future is how
1: fantasies vary cross culturally. Oh, uh, absolutely. Lots of interesting new hypotheses and things. So how you feel about your current relationship? How does that related?
0: Yeah, so um, I found that people who are more satisfied in their relationships fantasized more about their current romantic partners, people who were dissatisfied, fantasized more about celebrities and, and porn stars and other people. I think this makes sense, and it actually ties in with a new study I saw that came out this week finding that when people fantasize about their partners, it promotes pro-relationship behaviors and it actually increases desire for your partner. So when you're having sexual fantasies about your partner specifically, it makes you want them more and it makes you go out of your way to do nice things for them. So in that way, fantasizing about your partner can actually be really good for
1: stimulating passion and, and keeping the relationship alive. I love that. What does it say about you if you fantasize about Batman? No, I'm <laughs> not saying no, I'm not an idol. It's not me. <laughs> But, but you write about this in your book.
0: <laughs> right. Yeah. So, so people do have fantasies about a range of people other than their partners. Interestingly, your partner is the single person who's most likely to appear in your fantasies. But people do fantasize about celebrities, porn stars, superheroes, Batman being one of them. Um, Batman was actually the most fantasized about superhero among heterosexual women. And so I think, you know, for these fictional characters, superheroes and so forth, that's really just about temporarily interjecting a dose of novelty into your sex life. You know, you know it might create a, a real sense of arousal right in that moment, but it you know it doesn't necessarily mean that you got a, a thing for Batman.
1: Well, who's the least sexiest superhero? <laughs> the least sexy? Um, Is Superman I, I mean, up there at all? Is Superman up there at all?
0: Superman was, but actually Superman was more popular among gay men. So, you know, there are some interesting differences there. Gay men were not fantasizing about Batman. But they were really into Superman and, and Captain America. Uh, among heterosexual men, of course, Wonder Woman and Black Widow were among the, the most popular characters there.
1: I'm a big fan of Black Widow. Mm-hmm.
0: Not gonna lie. She's also played in the movies by the most fantasized about female celebrity among heterosexual men, Scarlett Johansson.
1: Wait, let's talk about... <laughs> I don't know if you want to go down this rabbit hole, but, but Black Widow... <laughs> like, what is it about like dangerous, sexy women? Yeah, so that's a great question. And
0: I think a big part of it is that men have a lot of fantasies about sexual submission and about giving up power and control. And so a woman who takes charge and who is dominant, I think is a big turn on to a lot of heterosexual men, just because it can help fulfill that desire for submission or to break free of pressure to conform to certain gender roles. You know, our our society dictates that men are supposed to be the initiators of sexual activity. So having a woman who is dominant, you know, is something that is very appealing to a lot of men.
1: Fascinating. So, another factor you found was how you feel about yourself. So, your self-esteem, even the trait neuroticism, right, affects this. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to lump in another thing here, which I think is related to this. I'm doing a factor analysis on the spot in my head, <laughs> a subjective factor analysis. Attachment style, I think, is appropriate here as well, like anxious, particularly anxious attachment style. So, what do you see there with this cluster of things?
0: Yeah. So uh, for people who are high in the trait of neuroticism, which is a trait that involves higher levels of emotional stability and a tendency to not deal well with stress. And for people who are high in attachment anxiety, where they have this fear of being abandoned, um, what I see there is that these individuals tend to play it safe in their sexual fantasies, and that they try to avoid doing things that are going to be riskier, that are going to stress them out. Rather, they're seeking to put their minds at ease to do something that's going to validate them and to prevent them from having those distractions, anxieties, and worries come in that might otherwise interfere with their enjoyment of, of sexual activity.
1: Mm. Thank you for explaining that. And I, We find that in our own research with attachment style, like predicting a lot of relationship type issues and things mm-hmm. that, I mean, they're not just my research showing that. There's like a, 50 years of research showing it, but our research also shows that. Here's a topic I'd like to talk about, OCD as a potential thing, and gender dysphoria. What is the link there?
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that was interesting in that I found that there was this link between compulsive sexual tendencies and having more fantasies about gender bending, so becoming the other sex or playing with your gender role or expression in some way. There is some research, not research that I've conducted, that has found this link between OCD and gender dysphoria. So so my results are are kind of consistent with that. And what researchers think might be going on there uh, is, is basically that OCD can express itself in a lot of different ways. And that one way might be some people might have these intrusive thoughts that they're transgender when they aren't actually transgender. And so they're engaging in all of these compulsive behaviors to try and verify their current gender. So There are all kinds of interesting findings there. But that's not to say that people who are transgender are necessarily have OCD or anything like that. We're talking about something that's totally separate there. You know, I don't subscribe to that idea at all that, uh, you know, there's anything psychologically wrong with someone who is trans. But there are these variants here, right, you know, where, where somebody might have OCD and that leads them to think that they are transgender when they actually aren't. I think that's a totally separate phenomenon. And so, we need to be careful in discussing it so that we're not lumping all of these things together under the same umbrella. And that's, you know, again, getting back to some of these controversial issues that we were talking about earlier is making these clear distinctions.
1: So, there a whole bunch of factors that this is the common theme here, you know, also like, you know, race and like cultural things like do people tend to fantasize about people who are of their similar racial uh, ethnic group?
0: Yeah, and that was a really interesting and and also somewhat disturbing finding in that I found that for people who were white, they fantasized predominantly about other white people. For people who were uh, Asian-Americans, they primarily fantasized about white people and very infrequently did they fantasize about other Asian-Americans. And I think that part of that stems from the fact that there are all of these negative sexual stereotypes about Asian-Americans and especially Asian-American men where they might be seen as asexual, or they might have negative stereotypes about the size of their genitalia. So we see that that institutionalized racism, I think, can actually creep into our sexual fantasies in, in terms of influencing the race of the partners that we fantasize about. And in our society, white is seen as more desirable because of the historically greater cultural power that whites have held. And so I think that's why we see whites being fantasized about more than people of other races. And I think a lot of people just take it for granted. They don't realize it. And, you know, we see this a lot where people talk about their attractions as, as if they have no control over them. And they say, well, it's just, you know, I, I'm I'm just not attracted to African Americans, right? And and they'll say it nonchalantly, like they have no control over it, don't, have no idea where it comes from. But I think a big part of the fact that, you know, we have these very separate race-based attractions is tied into the fact that. We live in a culture where there's there's a lot of racism embedded in it and that creeps into our sexual desires. It's a very uncomfortable thought, but my data suggests that there was a lot of truth to it.
1: Uh, So how do we see ourselves in our sexual fantasies? Is there individual differences in that as well? Yeah,
0: that's one of the things that I had never really seen explored in research on sexual fantasies that I found to be incredibly interesting. I found that most people had fantasized about changing themselves in some ways in their fantasy, whether that was having a different body type or
1: having a different general i become general a penguin appearance. in my fantasies.
0: <laughs> For some people, it could be a different species. It could be a you know, different age, different personality. People change themselves in a lot of different ways. But there's an interesting gender difference where we see women are more likely to change their bodies than men. And I think that, again, stems from uh, cultural pressures on women to look a certain way. But interestingly, we see that men are more likely to fantasize about changing their genitals than are women, and I think that stems from the fact that there's more cultural pressure on men to to have a very large penis. And we see that gay men fantasize about changing themselves more, their bodies and genitals, than anyone else. And I think that's because in the gay community, there's so much pressure to have a perfect body and to have uh, you know very large genitals. So you know, again, I think the Cultural issues really creep into our sexual fantasies in a lot of ways.
1: Good. I'm glad you brought up uh, big genitals because I want to talk about that for a second. Because you make a really excellent point. I thought an excellent point in your book about how everyone should just kind of relax. You know, mm-hmm. like just um because we know, for instance, like you're not going to enjoy the sexual experience if you're so self-conscious. Like my colleague Todd Cashton, and his colleagues have published some great stuff on having that kind of anxiety really reduces your sexual satisfaction. You said that we could probably relax for about. You know, penis size is one thing we could probably all relax about. Can you elaborate a little bit why? Sure. So um, there are a couple of reasons there.
0: One is that a lot of the men who think that their penis is too small are actually totally perfectly normal. We have very inflated expectations and beliefs about what the average penis size is. So odds are, if you're concerned about your penis size, you're probably pretty normal. The other thing, too, for heterosexual men is that the vast majority of heterosexual women say they're satisfied with their partner's penis size, and they're not clamoring for for partners with much larger genitals. So, you know, a lot of this concern and anxiety that men have about their genital appearance is totally unfounded and comes from these false beliefs about what normal is and about what they think women want. And, you know, I think by having better sex education and by better understanding our bodies and what's normal we can all relax a bit more and, and not get so hung up on our bodily appearance. And, you know, this isn't just for men, right? There's also all of this cultural pressure and anxiety on women to look a certain way. And so, you know, we need it across the board. Everyone needs to feel better and more comfortable in their bodies, regardless of gender, in order to relax and enjoy their sex lives more.
1: I absolutely love that point. Would we be too shy if I asked you to give some numbers on what is normal? Because that might calm a lot of people.
0: Mm -hmm. So in terms of uh, penis size, you know, there was a recent meta analysis where I think it looked at 15,000 penis size measurements taken from several different countries around the world, all performed clinically, right? So there was standardized measurement. And the average was around five inches in length. You know, most men fell within a pretty narrow range. You know, in terms of men who have the the sort of porn star sized penises, you know, it's a very, very small percentage of the population. I don't recall the exact uh, number or statistic offhand for that, but it's available on my blog because I've written about this before. My blog is uh, Sex and Psychology. Uh, and so, you know, you can just search for 15,000 penis study and that will tell you the, the numbers there.
1: Now, that was obviously an online survey as well, right? No, so this was a meta-analysis of a bunch of different... Oh, yes, you- of course. Okay, yes, yes.
0: Yeah, where gotcha. people did go into a lab and there were clinical measurements performed. Gotcha. Okay, that makes a lot of sense.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's end this conversation today talking about what I think a lot of people are really, by this point, if they've made it to this point in the podcast, first of all, congratulations, you know, you're, <laughs> you know, like, we thank you for, for hanging in there on this very sensitive topic. How do you turn your fantasy into reality? And should mm-hmm. you? And which one should you? and should he not? Very
0: carefully. So I think when it comes to this link between fantasy and reality, we need to approach it with great caution and realize that not every fantasy should be turned into a reality. So, you know, first it has to check the boxes of being safe, sane, consensual, and, and legal, you know, and if it doesn't meet those criteria, it's not a candidate for something that you would want to potentially act out. If it does check those boxes and you decide that, you know, this is something you really want to act on and make a part of your sex life, then you need to have really good communication with your partner first or partners, depending on what your fantasy is about, in order to make it happen. Um, Because when people don't have the communication skills necessary, they can wind up in a lot of trouble in their fantasies and it might not go as planned. So it requires a lot of planning, coordination, establishing intimate communication first, coming up with some ground rules, doing some research, thinking about setting a safe word so that you or your partner can exit the this, this situation should one of you become uncomfortable with it. There's a lot of considerations here and it's hard to sum them all up in a uh, course, very short period of time. But this is something I go into great detail in the book because when it comes to acting on your fantasies, yeah, there are lots of great potential rewards you can get, such as becoming closer to your partner, having a really enjoyable experience, being more sexually satisfied. But there are risks too. And some people have bad experiences and it creates a wedge between them and their
1: partners. So, if you want to act on your fantasies, approach with, with great caution. It seems like a very sensible advice. Now, you found that only less than one in three people have made their biggest fantasy a reality. So, mm-hmm. it sounds to me like, most people in America are not sexually self-actualized.
0: Right. Yeah. So I found that the vast majority of people said that at least for their biggest sexual fantasy of all time, they did want to act on that. I think it was around 80% or so who did. That doesn't mean that they want to act on every fantasy they've ever had, but at least their biggest one, most people do want to make it a reality, yet relatively few have, have ever done it. So there is this big gap between fantasy and reality for most people, it seems.
1: Yeah. But you say those of us who have the overwhelming majority of those of us who have acted on our fantasies say the end result met or exceed expectations. Uh, so you've had 86% said it met or exceed expectations. That's huge. And further, that it had a neutral to positive impact on the relationship. So 91% said it had a neutral or positive impact on the relationship. So by and large, the outcomes of acting on our fantasies seem to be pretty good. So that, that's a big message of your book, it seems. Yeah.
0: Right. And now I should say that it does vary a bit depending on the type of fantasy people were acting out. And um, okay. interestingly, threesomes, being the most popular sexual fantasy of all time, were the fantasy that was least likely to work out when people acted on it. And I think it's because people don't have a script for it. And, you know, there's, there's some affective forecasting errors going on where they think in their head, oh, that sounds great and, and fun and exciting. But then they're in the situation and realize, oh, hey, I'm, I'm jealous or I'm uncomfortable with this or I'm not sure what to do. So, you know, there's variability across fantasies. But for the most part, when people do act on their fantasies, they report positive outcomes. But because there is that risk there of things not turning out well, that's why I say just approach with caution and do a lot of planning and prep work ahead of time and make sure that you have good sexual communication.
1: Here's another interesting stat, which I think relates to um, this book, Sex at Dawn. Believe it or not, non-monogamy fantasies were most likely to meet expectations, with 92% of those who had acted on non-monogamy fantasies saying the outcomes were at least as good or even better than they dreamed. I mean, what does mm-hmm. that mean about the nature of, of the evolution of monogamy?
0: Yeah, that I found to be a really fascinating finding, right? Because it, I think a lot of people just intuitively would expect that if you're having some type of open relationship, that that's fraught with all kinds of danger and, and, and peril. But for the most part, what I see is that people report really positive experiences with it. In terms of, you know, whether we're, you know, sort of meant to be uh, or evolved to be monogamous or non-monogamous, it's a great question. Different researchers have different perspectives on this. My view is really that different people are better suited to different kinds of relationships. And and some of us are very well suited to monogamy. Others are very well suited to consensual non-monogamy. And so I think, We do well to let people choose the types of relationships that are right for them rather
1: than saying everybody should be doing this or that. Good. And that's another common theme is is the importance of communication for healthier sex and relationships no matter what whatever the arrangement is, the the healthy communication. So, I will will end with this last question. How can we break the barriers in society that prevent us from communicating about our desires?
0: Mm -hmm. So, I think really that actually starts with having better sex education. In the United States today, less than half of states even require sex ed, and a much smaller number require that sex ed is is medically accurate. And so we have a lot of students who just aren't really being taught at all about sex, and they're certainly not being taught how to communicate about it. The primary message we get in sex ed is just say no, don't do it. So how is that going to set people up for the ability to communicate with their partners not just about what they want, but to have conversations about consent and safe sex. So I think we need to do a lot more to lay the groundwork at a younger age for establishing good sexual communication. So that's having better sex ed in schools, having parents being comfortable talking to their kids about sex and answering their questions about it. So we need a broader cultural change and just how we think about sex and and just removing that shame and stigma that comes along from just mentioning the word sex.
1: I love that point. So you're like the Kinsey of the modern age. I'm honored (laughs) to talk to the Kinsey of the modern age today. Thank you so much for your time. And I I hope a lot of people, uh, this inspires people to read your book.
0: Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Scott. It was fun.
1: Thanks for listening to the Psychology Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to react in some way to something you heard, I encourage you to join in the discussion at thepsychologypodcast.com. That's thepsychologypodcast.com. Also, please add a rating and review of The Psychology Podcast on iTunes. Thanks for being such a great supporter of the podcast. And tune in next time for more on the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity.